Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Um, I, I first of all wanted to say just a personal and thank you to all the people who brought voices over the summer. It was really fab. And um, I wasn't here in the building for some of them, but listened to them all in podcasts. And um, there wasn't one that didn't sort of touch me in, in different ways. So thank you for that. Um, okay, so my, my task this morning is part three of this series, What Kind of Church Are We? And I'm talking about church as family. And I don't know if you've ever heard yourself say, oh boy, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Or am I the only one who's ever said that? No, I, I imagine not. Um, and there is truth in that. You, can't, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And the same goes for church. We are family and God has joined us together and that can be beautiful and difficult all at once. So I want to talk about, um, Dallas Willard says that the, the community of the church is the primary place for our spiritual transformation and our growth. And so you are invited into that. And the gospel of grace that we believe in and that we trust in is the gospel that allows us to be transformed and to have total strangers, total strangers, people who are the absolute opposite of us as our brothers and sisters. And there's something truly beautiful about that. But I also, just behind me is a lovely quote from Stanley Herwis, the most creative social strategy we have to offer the world as a church. Here we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it something it is not, namely a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. And that is a beautiful, beautiful idea. But I want to acknowledge right at the outset, and I want to remind us, as C.S. Lewis tells us in his book, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And I want to acknowledge right at the start that when we're talking about church as family, we have to accept that people are harmed and hurt in church just like they are everywhere else. And that there are people in this room, I am quite sure, who are carrying wounds of disappointment from church, their experiences. And I am quite sure that there are people in other churches this morning who are carrying wounds from this community because we're human and we mess up. And so I want to acknowledge that and be sensitive to that, that when we're talking about church as family, it can be sore for people and it can be sensitive, as well as talking about family, which can be sore and sensitive. And whilst I hold that view of C.S. Lewis about vulnerability and love and your heart and your choices and therefore how you can sometimes shut down and, and refuse to connect, I also want to offer you Henry Newman's wisdom, and it's the converse. No one person will fulfill all your needs, but the community and the family can hold you. 
The family can let you experience the fact that beyond your anguish, there are human hands that hold you and show you God's faithful love. And so there's two sides to what I want to say about the church's family, that yes, I acknowledge it can harm and hurt and wound, but I also know from my own experience and the experience of many others that the human hands of church are also the tools that the Lord uses to heal us. And my hope and my heart and my prayer is that this community ministers to those who have been hurt and harmed and says welcome and says you are loved and we will walk together and together we will become more like the beautiful one. But I want to say we don't always get it right. Anyone who's been here knows that. Let's be real. I'm going to read what um, this lovely passage from the message. It'll come up behind me. So the lovely Noah is doing my slides today. Can I just remind you of that? And he's doing a brilliant job already. Look at that. And we agreed that I would sort of maybe mention the person so that he's not sitting. Because sometimes I, I look down there and I see blank faces and I'm not sure my quotes are matching. But we're doing good, Noah. Okay, so from the message, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son, Jesus, stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. He has called you by name. And he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, glorious completing what he had begun. And so the plan of the Lord for family and for the church and for being in relationship with Jesus is that the whole work of redemption has this in its view, that we are a vast family where all members are transformed and become more and more like their elder brother, Jesus. That is the language that we want to think about when we think about faith, that my daily walk is drawing me more and more to look like my brother, Jesus. He was the first and he is the model. The language of family is peppered right throughout the life of Jesus. When he was on the cross, and it'll come up behind me, he was on the cross, he was suffering immeasurably and he said he saw his mother and the disciple that he loved standing near her and he said to his mother woman here is your son and then to the disciple here is your mother from that moment on the disciple accepted her as his own mother and so throughout the life of Jesus and after the death of Jesus the language of family was what he used when he healed when the woman touched the hem of his garment one of my favorite stories. He knew and he turned around and he called her daughter. And she was the outcast for 12 years. No one had spoken to her, touched her, looked at her. And he said to her, daughter. He placed her in relationship with him. And that is where we are supposed to be. That is how we are supposed to live. In relationship with him as family. Uh, a guy called... Richard Foster, 
writes beautifully on a lot about the early church. And he talks about the early church that started. And he says that in an early church, it would have happened in, say, a, a craft maker's house. That his wife and his kids would have been there. A couple of male slaves would have been there. A female slave, which was even lower than a male slave, dependent relatives. There was tenants of the home. There were slaves might have joined whose owners didn't go. There might have been families from another household. There would have been a homeless set of people in the average church meeting. There would have been migrant workers renting small rooms. There would have been a couple of Jewish, Jewish folk, and there would always have been an enslaved prostitute, a sex worker. So those were the sorts of people that formed the early church. In that culture, men had all the power, and women were Children could be killed, left at the side of the road if you didn't want them or you had too many of them. This was a culture where life was pretty cheap. This was a culture where women were bought and sold and were sex workers for whoever. And into this culture, where all these invisible people met in a room, Paul teaches in Galatians 3, in Christ's family... There can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. We are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. And since you are Christ's family, then you're Abraham's famous descendant, heirs according to the covenantal promises. So this was utterly counter-cultural. In a world where there was power and control and responsibility and life was cheap, Paul was saying, flatten it all. You are all equal because you are equal in him. It was utterly, utterly radical teaching. They shared their wealth. No one went hungry. How far have we come from that model of church as family? Do we look for the invisible? Do we search them out? Do we radically welcome? Do we share our possessions? Um, do we make sure that no one is hungry? These are big questions if we're going to think about what it was like as the early church. And there are many, I want to speak to just over the course of history from, from early, the life of Jesus onwards, there are many, many ethics that are up for debate. You don't need me to tell you that. There are many Christian ethics that are up for debate, but one that has never been up for debate is radical hospitality. That has been the mark of Christian people throughout history. In 160 AD, Lucian, who was a pagan critic, a big critic of faith, and he saw how a Christian community looked after a prisoner who had come out. And he said, the efficiency of Christians shows what Whenever matters of community interest like this happen, this was a, a, a person who had come from prison. It's unbelievable. They literally spare nothing. They spare nothing. So someone whose life work was about criticizing the faith had to give the Christians that. They literally spare nothing. I find that personally very challenging. There's another writer, a traveler called Rufinus, who wrote in 400 AD, and he talked about how they were out in the desert, they'd been traveling for days, and they came upon um, a monastery. And the monks spotted them, 
And he described how they came out like a swarm of bees. They came out, they gave them food, they gave them water, they washed their clothes, they took their clothes off. And then the last thing they did was sing psalms. The last thing they did was sing psalms. They showed them welcome, they showed them love, they showed them compassion, they washed them, and then they sang psalms over them. And he said... What can I say that would do justice to their humanity, their courtesy and their love? Nowhere have I seen love flourish so greatly. Nowhere with such quick compassion and such eager hospitality. And I suppose I wonder, do we in our families, this family, do we see the broken and the vulnerable and the needy? And we are out like a swarm of bees. What a brilliant image. Out like a swarm of bees, showing radical hospitality and welcome. What is that bit in the story of Abram where it says that if you welcome the stranger, you have entertained angels without even knowing about it? I love that idea of all the angels that we get to welcome and that we get to love because we show the love of Jesus. I just want to remind you, if you haven't read, oh, I can't remember the name, Scott McKnight's book, Scott McKnight's book, A Fellowship of Difference, there we go. We did teach about it several years ago, and it's just I'm a senior lady now, and I forget words. So, Scott McKnight tells us that the church's family is God's world-changing experiment, a table of different to show a broken, hurting world what grace, love, reconciliation, and peace actually look like. And so I love that idea that we are called to model something very different. And anyone who's ever lived in a family, as we all have, know that it's hard. We know that it's hard, but that we are to model something quite different to the world. And Stanley Harris. Here's one of the brilliant challenges he puts in his book, looking at community and looking at how we live together. And this is a hot topic, and I chose it. The new Christian is engrafted into a family. Therefore, we cannot say to a pregnant 15-year-old, abortion is a sin, it's your problem. Rather, it is our problem. We must ask ourselves, what sort of a family do we need to be to enable an ordinary person like her to be the sort of disciple Jesus calls her to be. And in a world where Christians are really, really good at talking about what is sin and it is your problem, but we're not so good at saying it's our problem and what are we going to do? How are we going to serve you in your time of need to make sure that you can be a disciple of Jesus, that you get engrafted into the family of Jesus and become like him. That is a very provocative idea, and I want us to sit with that and think about what that means and how we would actually work that out in our lives. We've been talking as a couple a lot about what it means to be fellowshipping with others and, and what it means to be together and how we look at the winter ahead and, and what does that look like. And about 15 years ago, we became friends through church. 
with a couple who are in their 70s and um, they're adorable. And uh, they love our family and we love them. And we try and see each other as often as possible. But if we don't get to see each other, we've got this very cool little habit of doing a, a WhatsApp voice note. Um, my brother is a bit younger than me and he's told me the other day he doesn't want to hear any more voice notes. He is old school and he just likes to do a FaceTime. So anyway, we, we swap voice notes. And they left us a voice note in response to one that I sent on Friday. And we sat on Friday night and listened to it. And Stephen said to me, he said, you know, when people ask me, how do I hear the voice of the Lord? That's how I hear the voice of the Lord. <laughs> I hear the voice of the Lord in other people. And I hear it in my own voice, but I hear it in others. And so he wanted me to say to you that I had heard the voice of the Lord this week and I'd recorded it, but I thought that was weird. So um, I thought you might all start to freak out or something. But what I, so this, so I share this with their permission. I wasn't to give their names. Fine. And I said, well, I want to share it because you have summed up church as family and, and responding to the current moment we are in. So if we can play the voice of God as it is. Hello, Stephanie. Lovely to hear your voice and get your update on your various activities. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> it's funny, you know, um, we're just sitting here. We're sitting actually in the front room with the sun shining in. It's lovely. We've been coming in here in the mornings for our prayer time after breakfast because the sun beats in. If there's any sunshine at all, it's at the front of the house in the morning, and it's really lovely. Um, and we're, we're, we're enjoying it. <laughs> yes, we're, we're trying to economise with gas and electricity, not because we're short of money, but we don't want to waste money because we will undoubtedly know people, maybe we already know them, who will be having financial struggles, and we want to be able to be in a place maybe to help out if we, ha if we can. So anyway, um, we've, we're in a sort of a, a funny stage of life, not a funny, an I would press stage stop. of life because- You don't need to hear all their updates. <laughs> they wouldn't have wanted those shared. Why is that the voice of God? I don't know if you heard it, that cute little 78-year-old voice. And she's saying, we're sitting in the front room and we're enjoying the sunshine. And we're sitting in the front room to save money. Not because we need to. Not because we need to. But because others will. And I, I was moved to tears at the thought of people... Well, she just challenged me in a way that I found quite sobering and beautiful. And I thought, if we want to live as the family of Jesus in this community and on this street, we need to be thinking, what are we doing with our money and our time to serve those who will struggle this winter? We are surrounded by them. And one of the very simple, beautiful things that we do as a community is farm box. And every fortnight we supply families in need because of their social situations with a bag of vegetables and fruit and a 10 pound voucher from Tesco's or Aldi. And anyone who's been shopping will know that 10 pounds will generally buy you two pounds of butter at the minute, that's it. And so I was talking to Libby two weekends ago and I said, is there any way we can up what we give people? Because 10 pounds is not a lot. And she said, well, 
that would be great and we'd love to but we'd need to check our funds we don't actually have the money and I thought to myself and I'm speaking to myself as much as I speak to us all if I look at the last week and the ten pounds that I have spent coffee here brunch out there maybe go to the cinema whatever they're not necessary but ten pounds means a lot And so I would invite you, I'm not going to do an appeal for a farm box. I'm going to say that if you're not giving in a sacrificial way to this community out of your plenty, you need to wonder why. Because we don't want to bang on about it, but we do need to know that there are people who rely on us. The farm box family we deliver to love to see that £10 voucher coming. We should be doing more. We should be doing more. And I would invite us to think, if we are really sharing our possessions, if we are really thinking about how we live as family, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us our time and our money. So I want to finish just as we come to the table. As you know, I love Rachel Held Evans' work, and I want to remind us that this is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of odd bulls and misfits gathered at a table. Not because you're rich or worthy or good, but because you're hungry. And you said yes. And there is always room for more. And so my heart as as I finish this morning is that I want to remind us that we are called to become more and more like our big brother, Jesus. That we are called to serve and to love, to share our possessions, to love one another, and to work together for the common good. This can't just be a thing we say at the start. It has to be our feet walking and doing it. And as you come to the table this morning, when I I first became a mum a very long time ago, I remember when Olivia was born and I held her, she was minutes old. And she didn't cry, she was a really quiet wee baby, and um, she just stared at me. And I remember saying to Stephen later, I feel like she can see into my soul. I feel like she's staring into my soul. And I locked eyes with her, and in that moment, I was so overwhelmed with love. I remember thinking, as long as there's breath in me, I will do whatever you need. I'm all over it, girl. And I've thought about that a lot, and I've thought about how when I lock eyes with someone, I usually lock eyes with someone that I'm in an intimate relationship with. But actually, when I lock eyes with someone, the imago day that is within me, one of our values connects with the imago day, the image of God that is in the other. And suddenly, something very sacred happens. And so this morning, as we come to the table, as a bunch of oddballs and misfits, and if you don't think you are, come on, look around. You are. We are oddballs and misfits. We are broken and vulnerable and messed up and beautiful. That's what I tell my kids all at once. And so when you come to the table this morning, three of your brothers and sisters are going to be here and they are going to serve you. And I would invite you to pause and take your time and to lock eyes with the person who is going to serve you because they're going to remind you that this is the the body of Jesus broken for you, and this is the blood of Jesus shed for you. 
And when you lock eyes, allow yourself to think about the Imago Dei that you carry connecting with the Imago Dei in them and let something sacred happen. So we're going to take our time. We're going to worship and, and sing. And I'm going to move this out of the way. Come slowly, come quickly, come as you are. You're welcome at the table. This is where it all begins. So our lovely helpers, Pauline, Lucas, Naomi, come and take your places.